Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, it's good to be back with you today. Tracy and I spent some time last week in Boston and the surrounding area. We had some fun, saw some beautiful coastal towns, and learned some history along the way. One of the things we did in Boston was a walking tour of what they call the Freedom Trail. There is a uh, brick path through the city of Boston, a red brick path that you can follow on your own if you want to. Uh, Or you can take a guided tour as we did and see the historical sites. So we began, I believe it was last Sunday actually, with our colonial host dressed in uh, period time uh, pieces. And one of our stops was the Park Street Church on the corner, of course, of Park Street, which came to be known as Brimstone Corner. It was named that for several reasons. For one, there was a second floor balcony on that church overlooking the the street where preachers would preach to the crowds assembled below. And these sermons were often fiery messages, some of them focused on anti-slavery and other social issues that were prevalent at the time. And this, they would also, of course, literally yell from there, fire. When there was a fire in the city, wherever it might be, they would yell fire, and then the town folk would gather around to help whoever needed help in the latest blaze. Furthermore, during the War of 1812, they actually stored sulfur or brimstone in the basement of that church. So our colonial guide asked us, how many of you have heard of the phrase fire and brimstone? to which I believe everybody in the audience agreed that they had. He then went on to say that we were standing at the very place that the phrase originated in the 1800s. I, of course, concluded that our colonial guide simply did not know his Bible. He did not know the Puritans or the Bible from which they preached, because fire and brimstone did not originate from Park Street Church in the 1800s. Rather, it originated from Genesis chapter 19 and verse 24, long before that, when God rained rained fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But in either case, we are all familiar with the phrase, though we don't hear that kind of preaching much anymore. Some of you grew up on that kind of preaching where the preacher would yell and get loud from time to time and would focus most of his sermons on judgment and hell. We, of course, have gone to the opposite direction, and now we talk about the love of God and what a wonderful plan he has for your life. But as we pick up the story of Jonah Jonah is about to deliver a fire and brimstone message to the evil inhabitants of Nineveh. And once again, had we not already known the story, their response is going to surprise us to say the least. 
we would never have seen a revival or an awakening coming to this city, and I'll explain that in just a bit. We have intentionally taken time this morning to remember those of our congregation who have finished their race of faith and who have gone on before us in the last few years. Jonah, of course, was never a member of this church, but had we not known the end of the story, we would have already concluded that he was gone. Were it not for the miraculous intervention of God, his life would have been over. But when we last left him, he was on the beach. He was not there because of a summer vacation. He was not there, as some of you will be in the weeks to come, for a fall retreat. He was deposited there by a great fish after three days in the belly. Now the question is, what is Jonah going to do? The more important question is, what is God going to do? We are going to see this morning that God is going to put his grace on display. Grace is a word that we often use. We sing about it as we already have this morning. And yet oftentimes we don't stop to think about what the word grace means. And certainly we have trouble figuring out what grace looks like. But this morning we are going to see grace on display. Look with me at Jonah chapter 3, beginning, of course, in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. Here's his message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed or overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God's grace on display. First of all, we are going to see God's gracious command. Verse 1 of chapter 3 must have been some very reassuring words to Jonah. Imagine with me as he sat in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights what must have been going through his mind. He had blown it. Would he ever hear the voice of God again? Could God ever use such a rebellious prophet as he was? Even if he miraculously survives this episode in the fish, 
which he had no idea that he would, is there any future for him? Probably not. But verse 1 reminds us that God is a God of second chances. Now understand that God is under no obligation to give anyone a second chance. For that matter, God is under no obligation to give any of us a first chance. Every chance by God, be it for salvation or for service, is a gift from God by his divine grace and mercy. Just because Jonah repented of his sin and his disobedience does not mean that he was due a second chance. Sometimes we wrongly believe that if we repent and return to our ways with God, that he is somehow obligated to respond by not only restoring us to a relationship with him, but giving us what we wanted. Now, he may indeed do that, as he does so often, but he is under no obligation. The reason I bring that up is because we expect things from God when we have no right for such expectations. And when we have those expectations, it causes us to take his grace and mercy for granted. We somehow think that we deserve whatever it is he is giving. And as a result, we fail to adequately express and acknowledge our gratefulness and dependence upon God. Jonah must have been extremely grateful to hear from the Lord again. You may find yourself in a similar situation this morning. You have messed up. You have been disobedient, but God is calling you again and giving you a second or a 200th chance. And if that be the case, thank him for that opportunity and be obedient. Because when God forgives, he doesn't hold a grudge as we so often do. He wipes the slate clean and demonstrates his abundant grace. So taking the second chance offered by God and by his grace Jonah begins the journey to Nineveh. Now, the fact that this was a dangerous mission has not changed. The fact that his fellow Israelites would have criticized him for taking this step has not changed. In fact, very little has changed at all, except, as we saw two weeks ago, for Jonah's heart. God had been working on his heart through the storm and through the fish, bringing Jonah to a place where he was ready to hear and to heed the message of God. Now, when we genuinely repent, we have a heightened awareness of both God and God's word. So that when the call came this time, Jonah arose and went. This second chance, this wording of the second chance is almost identical to the first except for the latter half. In chapter 1, we read that their evil has come up before me. God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. But in chapter 3, God says, "Go go to Nineveh and tell them the message that I tell you. Now, I don't want to make too much of that difference, but it does seem to be a little more vague the second time. It does seem that Jonah has been humbled enough that God simply says, now you are to go, and when you go, you are to tell the message that I tell you, and God doesn't even tell him what that message is. And that is the essence of obedience. Obedience to the will of the Lord becomes more important than Jonah's personal feelings 
We saw in week one that he did not want to go to Nineveh because he did not care for the people there. And he did not want them to receive the mercy of God. But now obedience is much more important. In fact, obedience is the primary thing that God desires in our lives. The Lord is not pleased by how great a show we might make or what a great impression we might make. He wants obedience. You remember in the Old Testament, King Saul learned this lesson. He disobeyed the voice of God by failing, to ca- by failing to carry out the Lord's commands against the Amalekites. God had specifically told him to destroy all of the Amalekites. Now, you and I might question that command, but regardless, Saul knew the command of God. God said, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Instead, God, Saul decided that he was going to keep some of them for his own benefit. And he was going to keep some of their products for the worship of God. And God eventually told him, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. So God is displaying his grace in this story of Jonah by giving Jonah a second chance reminding us that we ought to be grateful that our God is a God of second chances. And such commands are not burdens to be borne, but as in this case, they are opportunities for ministry and service even after we've blown it previously. That's God's grace on display. You want to know what God's grace looks like? Chapter 3, verse 1. But God spoke to Jonah a second time. And said, arise, go to Nineveh. The second display of grace takes place in that ancient city of Nineveh. You may remember it as the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The most powerful nation on earth at that time. And here we see a display of God's grace through God's gracious warning. Now you might have already been thinking about the fact of the people's response. But I'm not there yet. Before we get to that display of grace, the very fact that God is sending one of his prophets to a foreign city, the only prophet we know of that was ever given that mission, the very fact that Jonah is sent to a foreign nation and a wicked and evil nation at that is a display of God's grace as we know it. In most any awakening or true revival, The message we proclaim is at the center of the event. Now, I realize that uh, prayer plays a prominent role as well. Many testimonies of great awakenings or revivals will talk about how prayer preceded it. But when God moves, he chooses to do so through the foolishness of preaching. The awakening in our text occurs in the most unlikely of places. We saw week one that Nineveh was known for its wickedness. This was a city that consisted entirely of pagans. There was no small Baptist church on the corner anywhere in Nineveh. There was no group of people, as far as we know, that was praying in Nineveh that God might bring the message of salvation to them. Through and through, it was a wicked city inhabited by evil people. And yet God decided to demonstrate his mercy to such a people by sending his prophet to proclaim the message. And while initially reluctant, Jonah has been led to go. He has seen the light, he has admitted his disobedience, 
And now he is following the Lord. And so Jonah's obedience begins, began with a long journey to Nineveh. It was about 600 or 650 miles, which means it probably took a month or more to travel. That's a lot of time to think. That's a lot of time to imagine what's going to happen when you arrive. Every possible scenario must have run through Jonah's mind. He knew his message was not going to be popular. Messages of judgment and proclamations against sin never are. But he knew it was God's message and he had no right nor inclination to, to alter it. He was simply there to deliver it. He was God's spokesperson. But was it going to be effective? Or did he even care? How would he go about evangelizing a wicked and evil city? Well, we might conclude that the people wouldn't care about his message and therefore they need to be tricked into hearing and heeding. So Jonah perhaps might organize a basketball game and slip in the gospel at halftime. Or Jonah perhaps might bring people together and say, I know your marriages are having trouble and let me tell you how you can have a better marriage. There's nothing wrong with some of those approaches at times, but Jonah does not do any of that. He doesn't say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Instead, Jonah comes into town with a simple message. You are a wicked people and God is going to destroy you unless you change. And oh, by the way, you got 40 days. Now that doesn't mean that's all Jonah said, but that is the summary that we have in our text. And that kind of message probably didn't play well to ancient audiences, even as it does not play well to modern audiences. When I was in college, there was a free, free speech platform at the University of Georgia that anybody could get there and say whatever they wanted to say. And oftentimes, there were fiery preachers there, preaching fire and brimstone, yelling at people as they came by. And generally speaking, nobody paid attention to them. People mocked, they laughed, or at best, they walked on by. And I was told this week that the same thing continues on local college campuses. That simply doesn't seem to be the best approach to leading people to Christ. And yet, we might expect the local pop population of Nineveh to have the same response. We might conclude that what Jonah needed was a course in sensitivity training or tolerance. Others would say that the message itself was flat out wrong. After all, God is a God of love. I mean, how often do we hear that theology today? God has been reduced, even as we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, to a God who loves us and doesn't care about what we do. Judge not, lest you be judged. Of course, we looked at that in its context and we discovered what it truly meant. Others understand John 3 16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever uh, should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life but nobody seems to remember that just a few verses later Jesus says he who believes in in him is not judged but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God Jonah's message was not popular then, and it remains not popular now. 
but his message was not dictated by the masses. God told him, this is what you are to say. Now understand that we certainly must present the message in love. We do not present the message in arrogance nor in pride. But the message must be presented and must not be watered down. Jonah's message was not seeker sensitive, but it certainly was effective. Why do you suppose it was so effective given that he violated every theory of effective communication? And the answer must be because God was working in the hearts of the Ninevites, and that is the very reason that God sent Jonah to them in the first place. It was not that Jonah was a dynamic speaker. It was not that Jonah was a charismatic figure. In fact, it is believed that having spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, Jonah would have been bleached out because of all those gastric juices. It wasn't effective because he addressed the felt needs of his audience. In fact, his message doesn't even seem to offer any hope. He simply says, again, as far as we know, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. We see no call for grace, no action or mention of mercy, no doctrine of divine forgiveness. That's all we know. Now, I'm not advocating that we are to only talk about judgment. But we ought to talk about it some. I preached a series in my first church. I've not repeated it. But I've preached a series in my first church through the book of Romans. I actually left before I finished it. But we spent verse by verse through the book of Romans. And the first three chapters of Romans has the same theme. You are a sinner. By the time we were done with the first three chapters, we were all tired of hearing that message, me included. But I think Paul has a reason for doing that. And that is we can't hear the good news of the gospel until we understand the bad news of the gospel. And there are two sides to the gospel. The gospel is not just God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The bad side of the gospel is you are a sinner in need of forgiveness and unless you receive that forgiveness, you will face judgment. That is the message that Jonah came to Nineveh and preached, and Nineveh responded. And I'm calling this God's gracious warning, because God didn't have to do this. I mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah earlier. God gave no such warning to those two cities. Those also were evil cities and were destroyed by God. And yet they received no warning, just the wrath of God. And that is why I say that Nineveh received a warning of upcoming judgment as an aspect of God's grace. God didn't owe them or us anything. When we as parents issue a command to our children or a warning, we do so out of love. When we tell them, don't go there or watch what you're doing, it is not a harsh statement. Rather, we are warning them out of love so that they don't experience the harsh consequences of their poor decisions. And that is exactly what God is doing to the Ninevites. No one likes to be the bearer of bad news, and yet there is no salvation without understanding the dangerous condition that we are in. Jonah's message might not be exactly what we want to hear, but we have the responsibility to warn others even as we have been warned about God's wrath and judgment to come. 
You might call that old school fire and brimstone and maybe we need to package it a little nicer than they used to, but the negative side of the gospel still needs to be proclaimed. Warnings in and of themselves are a display of God's grace. And then we look thirdly at the remarkable response of the Ninevites, a response that none of us expected. Although Jonah might have been the only one who had an inkling of what would happen, and we'll see that next week, but today we focus on God's gracious mercy. We are told very simply that the people believed. They believed God, not Jonah. Jonah was just the messenger. They believed God. And they responded to that belief by putting on sackcloth, which was a cheap form of clothing only used by the poor. They took off their costly garments and they put on sackcloth and they proclaimed a fast. They were mourning over their sins. This wasn't done by just a few people. This was done by the entire city from the greatest to the least. The king himself exchanged his royal robes for sackcloth and issued a official decree. And he sits instead of on his throne, he sits on ashes as a way of making a sign of clear humility. And he calls on everyone to turn from, to God and turn from their wicked ways. Now what is going on here you might ask? This is what we would call the genuine results of spiritual awakening. They were weeping and crying out to God to have mercy on their souls. They were turning away from their sins, which again is a sure sign of repentance. We talked about some of this in the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about fasting. We talked about repentance. And we talked about the fact that repentance is not just turning away from sin, but it is turning toward God. It is a two-pronged approach, forsaking our evil ways and turning toward God. Now, strictly speaking, revival is the reawakening of believers. It is the reinvigorating or restoring of passion and joy to those who know and follow Christ. As such, revival is reserved just for believers. An awakening, on the other hand, a spiritual awakening, is a term used to refer to a time when unbelievers gain an understanding of God and are converted. An awakening refers to a sudden unexpected increase in the sovereign work of God in a widespread fashion. Consciousness toward the things of God are elevated and a fear of God sweeps through the community and many are saved. America has experienced at least two such great awakenings. They are called the first great awakening and the second great awakening. Apparently, they did not have catchy phrases in those times. The first great awakening occurred during the 1700s and was led by men such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. The second occurred in the 1800s and helped what became known as the modern missionary movement, fueling missionaries like Adoniram Judson, William Carey, and Luther Rice. There is much confusion in our own day between these two words. Revivals and awakenings, often the words are used interchangeably, which further clouds the issue. If you grew up in Southern Baptist churches, you are familiar with the term revival. 
And you know what that means in Southern Baptist life. That means you had a series of meetings a week long. Later, it was reduced to maybe Sunday through Wednesday. But you gathered with the body of Christ for a few services and a guest speaker was called in and a guest singer was called in with the hopes that their preaching would lead to salvation. And after the event was over with, you would hear Southern Baptists say, we had revival this week, which strictly speaking is simply not true. You may recall earlier this year, reports of revival coming out of a college campus in Kentucky. It was a Christian college, and one day chapel just didn't end. They kept on going, and they kept on going for weeks. And as word got out that a revival was happening on Asbury University's campus, upwards of 15,000 people per day were showing up in this small town to attend these revival services. And by the time it was over with, some 50 to 70,000 people had visited this small town. Other college campuses reported similar experiences in the weeks and months to follow. It was only put to an end when the president of the university decided that they could no longer host such meetings. The question is, was this true revival? Well, it's hard to say. And I'm not going to decide that this morning. Because if I do make a decision, then I'm going to be questioned for it. And I'm going to be charged with being cynical or jealous But just because something is called a revival or an awakening doesn't make it one. Time will only tell. Were people really saved? Were people really awakened? I don't know the answer to that, but only time will tell. So what is this response in Nineveh? Well, the Bible tells us that God relented from what he said he would do and did not destroy the city. This kind of phrase often brings up the whole idea of whether or not God changes his mind. The King James Version uses the word repent, that God repented of what he was going to do. Other translations use the word relent, and I like that translation better because relent means to become softer or gentler in attitude. In other words, God's mercy took over for his wrath. But the question then becomes, did God change his mind? Did God intend to destroy this city, but when they repented, God changed his mind? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. First of all, God does does speak to us in language that helps us understand. In other words, there are places in Scripture where God speaks to us in a manner that we humans can understand, and this certainly is one of them. We also know that the Bible says that God is immutable. It's one of the attributes of God. The immutability of God means that God does not change. 1 Samuel 15 says that God is not a man that he should have regret. Likewise, in Numbers, we read that God is not a man that he should change his mind. If we go to the New Testament, we find James saying that God is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we know that God knows all things. Nothing takes God by surprise. And we know that, therefore, God does not change. If he could, then we could doubt everything about him. If God is a God that changes, then we could doubt his goodness. He might be good today and not good tomorrow. 
If God is a God who changes, we could doubt his faithfulness. He might be faithful to us today, but maybe not next week. So what we find here is a genuine warning, which implies a softer side if and when that warning is heeded. Again, we as parents know this. We say to our children, do your homework or you're not going to the game Friday night. Implied in that is if they do their homework, they can go to the game. That is, we give them warnings, but if they heed that warning, then whatever punishment we were going to meet on them is not going to take place. And likewise, the same thing here. God says, in 40 days, I'm going to destroy Nineveh, but implied in that is the fact that if they repent and turn to God, then God is not going to destroy them. The question then becomes, was this genuine conversion? It certainly appears to be. Matthew indicates at least that uh, some were truly converted. He says, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. But sadly, history tells us that it was not too many years down the road before Nineveh was utterly destroyed. Nahum and Zephaniah, two other minor prophets, predicted the destruction of Nineveh, and it did indeed occur around 610 B.C., some 150 years after Jonah. Some scholars see this as a reason not to believe this awakening in Nineveh. Not only do we not have any evidence of this outside of Scripture, but they say Nineveh was destroyed some years later, and therefore it must not have happened. Furthermore, the descendants of these very folks that Jonah preached to would conquer Israel, both the northern and southern kingdom, just a few decades later. You say, well, could this have been real revival if all of that is going to happen in history later? Well, look at Europe. Europe had many great awakenings. Europe was a bastion of Christianity, but no more. Look at America. I mentioned those two great awakenings. And yet here we are some couple hundred years afterwards and nobody would say that America is a spiritual nation at this point. Just because someone or some place experienced spiritual awakening or revival doesn't mean that that is always going to be the case. Well, what does that teach us? Perhaps the tragedy of not passing on our faith to the children. And how I see this more and more, parents who themselves were raised to love and serve God, who have strayed from the path themselves and are no longer raising their children in the fear and nurture of the Lord, even saying such things as, well, children need to make their own choices. And naturally, everybody needs to decide for themselves for or against Christ. But you and I ought to do everything we can to model and teach our generations that come after us the Lord. It bothers me to hear parents say, well, my children don't want to come to church. So what? Do you give them a choice about school? Of course not. When they say to you, I don't want to go to class today, you say, I don't care. You're going. And yet when it comes to spiritual things, the very things we say are of utmost importance, we say, well, I don't know what to do. We need to model and we need to teach our future generations about the Lord unless and if we don't, 
they may just stray like we see in this history of Nineveh. Well, the story of Jonah and the awakening of Nineveh has come to a close. The reluctant prophet has a change of heart and tragedy has been averted. The wicked and evil people of this ancient city have repented and they have found the mercy and grace of God. So we can close our Bibles and rejoice that God is sovereign and merciful and everyone lives happily ever after. Except there's a chapter four, isn't there? Because not everyone's going to live happily ever after. But we'll have to wait for next week on that. But the message for now is this. God's grace is greater than all of our sins. He is a God who gives us second chances or 200 chances. He forgives and he restores, though we must not presume upon his grace. We have seen that grace on display. You say, what does grace look like? We see it in chapter 3 of Jonah. God comes to Jonah a second time. He says, I want you to serve me. God gives a warning to the evil residents of Nineveh. You're going to be destroyed unless you repent. And God's grace is on display when they do repent. And he showers upon them his mercy, even as he's done on us. So let us not just marvel at the grace of God on display in ancient Nineveh. Let us marvel of the grace of God on display in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace that is greater than all of our sin. Though we do not deserve it, even as the Ninevites did not, you have showered your grace upon us, forgiving us of our sins and giving us the, the privilege of serving you in your kingdom. So thank you for your grace that equips, empowers, and saves us that we might be part of your kingdom and serve therein. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.